Good morning. Good to see you here today. Take your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 19. You see some new faces around you this morning. It's some of our congregation that has joined us from the balcony on the main floor. I'm so glad to see you here. Even some of those rebellious ones who said, they, I shall not be moved. I won't name any names, but Carmen Lane, so good to see you here on the ground floor. Luke chapter 19. Told that you have no outlines in your bulletin this morning. I don't know what happened. I ran them off. If you didn't get one, I don't know what happened. Luke chapter number 19. What we have before us this morning is the only parable that perhaps is actually based on an actual historic event. The story that Jesus told must have really grabbed the attention of the people of his day. In 4 BC, Archelaus, the son of Herod the Great, traveled to Rome with the hopes of being crowned the ruler of Judea. When Herod had died, there was confusion over his will. He had written six of them. Two of his sons, Antipas and Archelaus, both claimed the throne. Archelaus traveled to Rome with the hope that Caesar would confirm his as the ruler. The Jews, however, were outraged with the prospect of Archelaus being the king because he was as cruel and brutal as his father had been. Therefore, they sent a delegation of 50 leading citizens to Rome to oppose Archelaus being anointed, appointed as the ruler. The, ruler. the result was that Archelaus did not become the king of the entire region but was appointed ruler of Judea. In fact, his palace was in Jericho. Galilee was given to his brother Antipas, and Jordan was given to his other brother, Philip. Verse 11 begins with, Now as they heard these things. Perhaps Jesus has been discussing with his disciples as they traveled about the things that had happened at the home of Zacchaeus. They had heard Jesus say to Zacchaeus, today salvation has come to this house. They had also heard Jesus say, the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. We're told in the remainder of verse 11, exactly what, why, Jesus tells this parable. He says he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. So as Jesus is drawing near to Jerusalem, the expectation is rising as now is the time of Passover and perhaps he will establish his kingdom immediately. They did not realize that he would suffer and die, be raised again and ascend into heaven, 
and that many years would go by before he would return in glory and power to establish his kingdom. So he tells them the parable now to correct the mistaken idea of the immediate appearance of the kingdom of God. Also, clearly Jesus wanted them to know what they are to do while they wait until he returns. I want you to notice with me three important facts this morning. First, the master has given us a task. Jesus begins his parable in verse 12. A certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. And so he called 10 of his servants and delivered to them 10 minas and said to them, do business till I come. He gave them 10 minas, the equivalent of 100 days wages or a little over three months wages. And they told him, according to this verse, do business. I like the way the old King James phrase it, occupy until I come. The word that is translated here is the word that we get our word pragmatic from. To be pragmatic means the ideas have value only in terms of their practical consequences and that the results are the sole test of the validity or the truth of one's beliefs. There is some confusion between this parable and the parable found in Matthew chapter 25 called the parable of the talents. The parable of the talents in Matthew chapter 25 teaches us that we are all given different spiritual gifts and abilities. But in this parable, what is given to each servant is equal, one mina. The comparison of the two parables helps us to understand although we have different gifts and abilities, there are some things that have been given equally to us by God. So what are those things that God gives to us equally? First, there is time. Now, we're not talking about the length of life. We know that that varies. Some live well into their 90s and beyond, and others die relatively young. But each of us is given the same amount of time in each day. We're given 24 hours a day. It is what we do with it that matters. There is time. There is also truth. Every Christian has been, according to the scripture, been entrusted with the gospel. We are given truth. We are also given opportunities. We all have the same task. That is to live for Christ. We must invest that which has been given to us in our lives. So the master has given us a task. Secondly, the master will hold us accountable. After some time, we're told the nobleman did return. And now he is king. In the parable, when the king returned, he required a personal accounting from each of his servants. We're living today in the period 
between verse 13 and verse 15, between the already and the not yet. When our master is absent, but who is going to return as he has promised. Verse 15 says, and so it was that when he returned, having received his kingdom, he then commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know how much each man had gained by trading. In the same way, we are giving, going to give an account to the king one day on how well we manage the resources that we have been given. The Bible records two great judgments that shall occur in the future. There's first of all the great white throne judgment that is revealed in Revelation chapter 20. And secondly, there is the Bema seat judgment or the judgment seat of Christ that we read of in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The great white throne judgment in Revelation chapter 20 is where those whose names are not written in the book of life will be judged. This judgment is not for Christians, but for those who reject the offer of eternal life that they are offered. The judgment of 2 Corinthians 5 is entirely different. In 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10 we read, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. This judgment is called the judgment seat of Christ or the Bema seat judgment. Bema, being translated judgment seat, was a raised platform from which prizes were awarded to athletes who had competed in competition. The judgment seat of Christ then is not for punishment of unbelievers, but for the passing out of rewards to the faithful. The master will hold us accountable. Third, our relationship to the master will be revealed by what we do or don't do. And there are three attitudes toward the king that are exemplified in this parable. First, there are those who reject him as king. Verse 14 says, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. But historically, the opposition failed. The man did become king in a far country and return to rule. And so will all the opposition to the king of kings, they will fail. As a nobleman, Jesus went into a far country to receive his kingdom. After he arose from a grave, he ascended to heaven and from which he sat down at the right hand of the father and he received majesty on high. He was declared king by the father. The Apostle Paul declares in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 9, God has also exalted him and given him a name above every name. And at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow of those in heaven, those on earth, and those under the earth. And that every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory 
of the Father. So one day he's coming again and he is coming as king. Verse 27 reveals the fate of the enemies of the king. It says, and now about those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king, bring, me, bring them in and execute them here in my presence. Our, our king came once as the lamb of God, but he's coming back and when he comes back, he will be king of kings and lord of lords. And when he does, he will put all his enemies under his feet. The idea of executions here will be much less than those who, when he returns, will be forever, eternally separated from him. Secondly, there are those who serve him gladly. Verse 16 tells us that when he came, the first saying, Master, your mina has earned seven minas. This faithful servant increased that which give, was given to him ten times, which is 1,000% increase. The master responds to verse 17, Well done, good servant, because you were faithful and very little, have authority over these ten cities. Well done. I would imagine the moderate equivalent would be to say, Good job. Notice the reward for faithful service was an opportunity for even greater service. And the most meaningful thing you'll ever hear in your entire existence will be if you are able to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. The second servant's report is found in verse 18. And the second kind saying, Master, Yumina has earned five minas. Likewise, he said to him, you also will have five cities. The second servant gave his report. The servant had shown an increase of 500%. Each of the faithful servants received a position of authority directly proportionate to their faithfulness. And third, there are those who refuse to use what they have been given. The third servant has a completely different story as revealed in verse 20. Then another came saying, Master, here is your mina, which I have kept and put away in a handkerchief. For I feared you, because you were an austere man. You collect what you did not deposit and reap that which you did not sow. The key in understanding, understanding this man is the word fear. He was afraid to put to use what he has been given. Many people do the same thing with that which has been given to them from the, from the Lord. Rather than putting the gospel to good use, they're afraid to talk about their faith. They're afraid to give God more of their money than they think they can spare. They're afraid to do anything for Jesus that goes beyond their own abilities and there forces them trust in the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. The master obviously expected his servants to take his word literally and seriously, which this servant did not do. This third servant seems to think that he'd done a good thing by simply retaining that which had been entrusted to him. But as verse 22 reveals, this is not how the king 
looked at it at all. For he said, out of your own mouth, I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man, collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, which in my coming I might at least have collected it with interest? Don't miss this. Jesus calls failure to do and to use what has been entrusted into our care as wickedness. The master took the very words of the servant seriously. And he judged him according to what he said. In effect, Jesus said, I will judge you by your own words. His words proved him hypocritical. His excuses make no sense. The man told the master that he feared him because he was a hard man. But the master refused to accept this explanation For if a slave really feared the master, he would have made an effort to produce a profit for his master, which he did not do. He did not even go so far as to put the money in the bank at interest so as to get some return for his master. If the servant was really that fearful, he would have been obedient. All of us know of men and women who tell us that they are followers of Christ. We know that they, like each of us, have been given an equal opportunity to make an investment in the kingdom of God. But because they have a distorted view of the king, they have become disobedient and have hidden that which was given to them, and they are living wasted lives. If you think that God is some kind of hateful cosmic tyrant, you will expect him to treat you that way. Nothing twists and deforms the soul more than a low and unworthy concept of God. In fact, Herman Locker says, our churches are full of those guilty of this sin. They seem to have no desire to serve the Savior. In verse 24, we're told that the master turns to those standing nearby and ordered them, take the mina from him and give it to him who has 10. And they said to him, Master, he already has 10. For I say to you that everyone who has will be given and from him who, has, who does not have, even that which he has will be taken away from him. The master orders that Mina be taken from the third servant who ends up with nothing and given to the servant who had, who had made 10 Minas. The crowd, or perhaps the other slaves, saw this as unfair. Why take away what little the one has to give the one who has more than enough? The question for us is, who does this unfaithful servant represent? Does he represent a true believer who has some faith in Jesus and thus barely gets saved as Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 3.15 and loses his reward 
Or is this person one who, though they profess to know God, by their deeds they deny him? The story does not say. The question for us, of course, is what are we doing with what we've been given? How then can we put the gospel to use? First of all, we can put the gospel to use by growing in our own spiritual life, by repentance and prayer and dependence upon the Holy Spirit. We can do so by trusting God to meet our needs and to guide our decisions. We can do so by serving, serving others, though in need. We can do so by sharing our faith. We can do so by making a personal investment in the missionary work of caring for the gospel both here and around the world, giving and sending and perhaps even going. We do so by showing the difference that being a Christian means in whatever our profession happens to be, teacher, lawyer, electrician, bus driver, it makes no difference. What attitude characterizes your life? Do you want him to be your king? Or do you reject him as king? You don't want God to tell you how to live your life. Or do you recognize Jesus as the Lord of your life? And you look forward to hearing from him saying of your life, well good, well done, good and faithful servant. That answer to that question reveals what you really believe about Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we realize that you judge us not just by the words of our mouth, but by the deeds of our life. Because what we do really reveals what we believe. Father, I pray for that one that may be here today that doesn't truly know that they have a relationship with you. There's nothing about their life that shows that they are a believer in you. I pray that our lives may truly reflect what we believe and may we understand where we truly stand with you today. We understand that we don't have to be perfect, that we are all fallen creatures and that we will never be perfect. But we can know, according to your word, whether or not we are saved. We can know whether or not the Holy Spirit resides within us. And so, Lord, I pray based on what you revealed to us that we will respond. If we have never accepted you as our personal Lord and Savior, may you give us the strength and the courage to do so today. And if we are, and we say we are, believers, then help us to live our lives in such a fashion that people can see the difference that Jesus makes in our lives. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.